Welcome to Launched. I'm Charlie Chapman, and today I'm excited to bring you the co-founder of the incredible photo editing app Darkroom, Mejd Tabby. Majd, thank you so much for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm like, I've been an admirer of uh, Darkroom from way before I even knew who you were. <laughs> and so uh, it's it's been really fun. I've gotten to meet you a couple times uh, over the summer, even though I haven't really gotten to meet many people thanks to uh, the year that is 2020. And each time has been a pleasure. And so I'm I'm really excited to have you here. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for the kind words, both about Darkroom Displaced. And uh, and yeah, it was, uh, it, it was nice kind of... Uh, coming across you on Twitter and the, and the indie iOS developer community and um, getting to know you through that. It's been great. Yeah. So normally I kick the show off with uh, an icebreaker, but uh, I have a bunch of stuff I want to talk about in a limited amount of time. And I'm trying, I'm trying to get better about uh, crunching the time here so that I can actually keep doing the show uh, <laughs> while having uh, life and kids. <laughs> so we're going to skip the, the icebreaker today and just get straight into it. No worries. I've got, uh, I've got a newborn at home too. So I understand now finally what it, uh, what it means when you say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And congratulations on that too. That's very recent, right? Thank you. Yeah. He's, he's uh, seven weeks old. <laughs> Man. Oh yeah. That's a... Uh... That's an interesting time. Although yeah. I guess being stuck at home uh, is already a thing that was probably kind of happening in those times. So maybe it worked out. I mean, nothing nothing is normal. In, in many ways, this feels like the most normal thing that's happened this year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Uh, okay. So before we get into Darkroom, uh, I want to give everybody a primer on who you are. So the three questions I usually ask everybody is, where are you from? Uh, do you have like a formal education related to the work you do? And then what was your sort of career leading up to Darkroom? Uh, sure. So, uh, where I'm from is Aleppo, Syria, um, and you probably have heard of it on the news. Um, in 2010, I didn't. I had to explain to people where it was, but that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. Yeah. And um, so, I was born there. I was raised there. And um, when I was around 10 years old, uh, this was you know late 90s. I, uh, my, fa my, my brother and my father came to the United States on a trip and they brought back with them an IBM PC. And this was before the internet had actually made it to Syria. And so we had this computer and, and they actually bought a printer with them, a, a laser printer at that, um, which was kind of impressive, <laughs> I guess, at the yeah. time for, <laughs> for Syria. Shipped across, there were, uh, yeah, exactly. Like and and, and uh, this wasn't a common object to be found in Syria at the time. And uh, so, you know, I was kind of just enthralled by it, mainly as, as a toy at the time. I remember thinking how cool it was that you can write your name on paint and then like print it on a piece of paper. And we didn't have like printer paper at the time. So it was like notebook paper that I cut out and put in the printer. So everything was kind oh, of like, everything was new and exciting. And then uh, eventually the internet, uh, we got internet in Syria. And, you know, of course it was dial up. Um, eventually by the time I um, emigrated from Syria to the United States, we had some DSL, but you had to go to a special like network cafe to get access to it. Mm, yeah, but, yeah. Um, so that, that was my, that was kind of my exposure to technology and the internet and computers. Uh, but before that, my, uh, my, uh, I, like I, I had this from a very young age interest in making things. Um, I, I was 
found myself to be kind of a bit of a maker. And, you know, when I was nine years old, it was flashlights and like little fans. Um, and I was into electronics from a young age. Just, I don't know why. And I don't really know where that came from. Um, I just kind of found myself into that. And I actually took a lot of art classes uh, at the time and drawing classes. And, and that was my main passion when I was a, when I was a kid. And then once the internet came along and I discovered websites, I got really into web design. And so, you know, my introduction to making things on the computer came from a um, uh, digital art place. Um, and then with the with, with the internet, that digital art, I wanted to make that interactive with websites. And, and that kind of seeded me into the world of programming and into, into the world of um, engineering and coding and, and all that good stuff. Um, and so that, that happened while I was in Syria. And then in 2003, I moved to Michigan. Um, and I lived there for seven years. I finished high school in Michigan, went to the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And then once I graduated, um, well, my, my, my last summer at university, uh, I interned at Apple actually. And oh, man. that was just the most amazing. I mean, that was probably like top two summers of my life so far. Yeah. Um, I made a lot of lifelong friendships. Um, a lot of the people uh, at my wedding were from that internship summer um, and we're still friends and, and, and it's really incredible. And um, so I, I was, I was an intern at Apple my last summer of college and my last, my senior year of college, I was actually working part-time remotely for the same team because there were some projects they wanted me to do and, and some things I wanted to finish. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, it wasn't great for my senioritis to already have had a full-time job at Apple by the time the last semester hadn't even started. So I think my GPA went down like to half what it was before. <laughs> I just <laughs> couldn't get myself to study for anything. But, um, yeah, so then I graduated and, um, I continued working with that same team full-time now in Cupertino. And, um, I was working at the time on the web front-end team for me.com, which then became iCloud.com. And uh, actually, if you go to iCloud.com today, a lot of the code that we worked on is still there. So the, the infrastructure, at least, yeah, it's been 10 years and a lot of the infrastructure is still the same, which is which is interesting. I mean, I'm sure, Dave, there's 10 years worth of tens of people working on it, but like some of the core pieces that we worked on, I can still see them in the source code. It's just because you did it so perfectly. They, That's the exactly, here. or 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 it really didn't make a difference and didn't matter. <laughs> Nobody's bothered touching it. I, I take um, the first one as the lesson. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know, like I, when I was an intern, I was before I interned, I was very much an Apple fanboy. Like I, as much of a fanboy as you could be, you know. Like and and it really, the, I mean, the term fanboy, not as like I prefer their products, but like. I was in the Apple brigades, like arguing against yeah. PC. You know, I was like fighting. It was a war, you know? And, right. it was, and it so was an actual battle and there were people on the a, other side. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there were sides, there were, there were debates, there were battles and there was a war to be won. And this was like Mac versus PC, you know? And then, um, and so going to Apple was this huge dream of mine, like lifelong dream. Well, not lifelong, but you know, like a long held dream of mine. And, um, uh, unfortunately, I actually didn't love being there as uh, as an employee. It was a little bit of a, you don't want to see how the sausage is made at your favorite restaurant. <laughs> and um, I actually stayed there as a full-time employee only for 11 months. And um, a lot of my friends who I, in, you know, enjoyed spending time with on the team had quit 
the same team to go start a startup together. And um, I ended up leaving Apple and joining them at that startup. And what that startup was doing was still on the website. Um, and uh, so we were trying to essentially build what Parse ended up building uh, before okay. Parse launched, except we were trying to we pulled a Quibi in 2012 where we tried to build everything up front before launching and then ran out of money. And there were some like personal issues. So, you know, at that startup, it was only five months before we had to kind of shop the company around for a sale. And that's actually how I ended up at Facebook. Facebook acquired uh, the company I was at. And um, I had basically at that point developed an expertise in mobile web technologies because the bet I had made with my career early on was, oh, like this iPhone is amazing, but writing native iPhone apps is like an idiot's job. And so clearly <laughs> what happened on the desktop with uh, web with web apps on, on, the, uh, on the desktop is going to happen on the iPhone right. where the web apps solution, are just... Right? Yeah, I mean, like, like mobile web apps clearly make so much more sense than building native apps. Like, it'd be insane to build a native app. And so, I went all in on the mobile web and developed all this expertise around touch handling and gesture control and and trying to really build high fidelity mobile web applications. But uh, and that's that's the expertise that Facebook acquired the startup for. Now, it wasn't my startup; I was just an employee there. Right. And um, so, ironically enough. Um, well, it's, I guess it's not ironic, but the, the, the project that Facebook acquired us to work on was, f uh, the Facebook phone. And this was in 2011. And Facebook at the time had this big effort to build the third mobile operating system to compete yeah, with the I iPhone and that. Android. So that was what I was working on. And it was just, man, it was a show and <laughs> sorry to use uh excuse, part of my french like it was it was a fun and interesting challenge but it was pretty clear that the fundamental uh technology choice of building an operating system on webkit built on top of the android uh infrastructure was just like two bad pieces of infrastructure sitting on top of each other uh i didn't okay i didn't understand i i knew it was like forked off of android but uh i didn't it realize forked, it was well it was forked off of android and they used android for like the subsystems and then the idea was to create an entire operating system on webkit so everything was javascript everything was html and css and what i was working on in the beginning was the gesture system allowing you to do pinches pans rotations nesting them man event bubbling event triggering um and that's actually how i met jasper hauser uh, my current co-founder on darkroom is we paired together and we used the settings app on that operating system as the uh, playground for the gesture system and it was one of those situations where, you know, well, I mean, this is this is a bit of a tangent, uh, but I think it'll come back later on in the story. Uh, I was, you know, Jasper's background is on in, he had built Sofa, which I don't know if you're familiar with Sofa. They made Mac software in 2006, 2011, 2010. And they had built like versions and checkout and kaleidoscope, all this like really iconic Mac software. And I know Jasper had previously worked on the Camino browser and on, uh, I don't know if you remember the disco uh, disc burning app, which ushered in 
part of that delicious generation on the Mac uh, with skeuomorphic design and really rich visual aesthetics. And so I was kind of starstruck just to be working with Jasper because Facebook had acquired Sofa as well. So we both ended up there through acqu- uh, acquisitions. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. And and so we were working together on this mobile operating system, trying to build a settings app and all the widgets and components. And and one of the reasons why I really connected and clicked with Jasper is that we had the same philosophy of, you know, to do something ambitious and to build this big system, you really need to get your um, foundation um, you need to have a really strong foundation. And we were trying to build gesture systems on top of a, um, an Android subsystem that was not delivering touch events uh, predictably. And so, you know, we both were like, okay, well, what's the point of doing what we're being yeah, asked to do? Yeah, possibly make that like, good if the foundation's faulty? Exactly. And so what we did is we started working with the uh, infrastructure team and building test apps and doing research to try to figure out why touches were inaccurate, why touches weren't coming in fast enough. And this was one of my favorite projects that I've worked on in my career because it was truly like research. And so, you know, we had the 240 frame per second camera and we had Android oh, wow. phones and yeah. Windows phones and smart and like uh, an iPhones. And we we're trying to like build all these sample apps to test and reverse engineer touch systems. And, um, and that was just really intellectually like exciting. Um, and that's when I kind of discovered that me and Jasper have the same philosophy when it comes to product development. And so we connected over that and we've actually continued working together since then. So it's been almost a decade now where we've worked together. Um, and I found that to be one of the most fruitful collaborations of my career so far. Um, and, but you know, all, as you well know from what Facebook phone ended up being and what ended up launching, it wasn't very exciting or successful. I mean, it, basically the whole project failed and what ended up launching was just like a, a an Android skin. And yeah, that's, that's the part I remember. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know if you also remember there was like that HTC phone that was, like, that was one red. Phone. That, yeah, exactly. Man, you remember all the details of this. <laughs> and didn't it have like a... There, oh man, I'm trying to remember a specific. There was one weird thing about it. Uh, well, I mean, ch- ch- uh, I don't know if it was weird, but Chat Heads was like the big innovation with that. Um, but Chat Heads release. was out before that, right? Chat Heads came out with it. Um, okay. But Chat Heads, Chat Heads was one of the core ideas of building a social operating system. So the idea w- was, to, I mean, I don't know how much time we want to spend on this, but um, the idea was to build an operating system where being social was kind of woven into the fabric of the operating yeah. system and everything was identity aware and like, you know, so it, there were some really great ideas and Facebook at the time had used its money to acquire and hire every famous designer <laughs> in the industry. <laughs> and so there's this incredible, like Mike Mattis was there and like the Gowalla team was acquired and joined. The Sofa team was there. Um, Lauren Brichter had joined for like a hot minute. Um, oh man. Um, uh, so, so many, so many people. Um, and, it, and it was kind of amazing and very exciting for a product focused engineer like myself to be around all these incredible designers. And of course, then there was Instagram acquisition and, uh, but what what ended up happening for me and, and the, the reason I kind of mentioned this whole story, and by the way, if I'm going into too much detail, just let me know and I'll 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 go back up because I know there's a bunch of other stuff we want to talk about. I mean, like I said, the thing about this show that I think is more fun is when it's more conversational because these asides are the things that you're not going to read. Like if I went and looked you up, I'm going to learn all about Darkroom. 
but all these little stories and stuff this is what (laughs) even if nobody else listening cares uh this is why i'm like doing this (laughs) so i'm loving this i'll trust you also to edit out the parts that aren't interesting and uh (laughs) let me know (laughs) so um so yeah so when that project got killed this was 2013 and i had kind of given up on the mobile web at this point and i was just like you know what like i'm trying to build high fidelity apps and i've spent the past six four or five years trying to do that and failing meanwhile everybody who chose to just build an iphone app is putting out this incredible work that's constantly getting more and more and more refined and like why why am i chasing this goal that seems to be more elusive with every passing year and so i decided to go native and i joined the 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 facebook ios team um and as did jasper and we both worked on pages and this was at the time when facebook if you remember the facebook app was like a mobile web html5 application um and it was just horrible and facebook spent a bunch of time rebuilding everything from the ground up as a native app and so i kind of joined that that effort towards the tail end of it working on events and pages which were part of the same team and you know the details of that project aren't that interesting nothing that interesting cool happened um but um eventually i kind of i've i one of the I, I had one goal my entire career starting with apple moving on to that startup moving on to mul- my multiple projects at facebook uh, which was i really wanted to build really yeah, really great experiences like i just really wanted to build high fidelity mobile applications that i was proud of that um I, you know, there was, there was a craft component to it. It almost mattered less to me how many people use it than the fact that it was beautiful. It worked really well and people loved using it. And so that emotional component of product development is, was really important to me. And over time, I realized at Facebook that that goal being so top of mind for me was a little bit at odds with the company. Right. It didn't align with the business, the business goals. Yeah. And, you know, at the end, like, I'm not trying to make a value judgment, but what uh, what Facebook cared about and optimized for w- wasn't the same as what I wanted to optimize for and care about. And so right. I, I kind of got burnt out a little bit, like running against a grain over there, uh, trying to prioritize quality over growth. Um, and, you know, we can have a whole other side conversation on the uh, who, like, is what's the point of quality if it's if you're not growing and surviving, which <laughs> yeah, in many in many ways, um, like. I view my post Facebook career as trying to balance the um, uh, realism of the Facebook mindset with the product and emotional uh, qualitative components of my Apple DNA and trying to kind of marry the two, you know? And so, and, and, and I can talk about that more when I get to Darkroom, but I decided to leave Facebook. And at the time, uh, Facebook had acquired Instagram and Instagram very much felt like that company that embodied the merging of those two Apple and Facebook DNAs that felt like on two ends of the spectrum because it was a high growth product, a social network, but it was a product that everybody loved. I mean, like people loved Instagram in 2013. I mean, it was, it was part of their identity. And um, so I wanted to join that team because I wanted to learn from Kevin and Mikey. And at the time it was like 30, 40 people on Instagram total. And so I wanted to learn from them what, what insights and what philosophy they had on product development. And um, 
And so I did, and I was there as an iOS engineer. Unfortunately, my timing wasn't great because um, if you remember between, I don't know how closely you followed Instagram's journey, but in between the time that they announced Instagram video and when stories launched, there was about a two-year gap where nothing really new and exciting happened at Instagram. It was just kind of the same product. Um, they updated it for iOS 7, which was cool, but like nothing, not really new. The Explore page hadn't changed in years. Um, nothing new and exciting on the product was happening, and that's when I was there. <laughs> and so after after about nine months, I just kind of got bored, and I was like, I'm... I don't know what I'm waiting for to happen here because I very much uh, in that part of my career viewed every six months as kind of an investment because I knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. Like that had been, you know, I you know, growing up, my family, my, my father had started his own business and grew it from nothing. And so I had entrepreneurship kind of in my blood since from, from, from when I, from when I was uh, raised in Aleppo. And uh, so I knew I wanted to start my own company and that was always an explicit next step. And I viewed every six month chunk of time in my career up until I started Darkroom as an investment saying, hey, am I getting a good return on my investment? Which, yeah, that's uh, that's such an interesting way to phrase that because that, since since I sort of joined the iOS world and, and came out with my own app, uh, I'm, I don't know that I have the same aspirations as you, but I am viewing my career in a much more similar way. I don't know that I've ever phrased it that way, but I'm like very specifically thinking like, okay, is the work that I'm doing right now helping me pursue goals later? Am I learning certain things that I feel like are important to learn? And it might not even be oriented with what I think is the most fun, which is probably what I was doing for the most of my career was like, does this sound like a fun thing to work on? Mm. Uh, But recently I found myself thinking in those same kind of terms of like, okay, this doesn't look like fun, but this is an area I know I'm weak and I need to like go there, be around people who are experts at that and like absorb and learn and grow that part of myself. Cause that's like an investment into myself. Yeah. And there's a lot of growth in that thinking, you know, that it's, it's, it's understanding. I was, I was lucky to have had the life experience um, that gave me that uh, clear vision for what I wanted my career to be um early on and so i was you know what i'm describing has its downsides as well you know i i moved around a lot early in my career i went through four jobs in three years and so you know that that means there's there uh, that means i was always kind of i had one foot out the door so to speak right um in the first part of my career which which isn't great for for, there's there are a lot of lessons to be learned by doing one thing for a long time and iterating on it. And when you're constantly have one foot out the door and you're going like six months here, six months there, a year here at most, then you're not giving yourself the time to really think deeply about one topic for a long time. Or pay and for the mistakes that you made. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's easy to really get a big ego because you're not dealing with the consequences of your right. decisions. So there, there are downsides to it, but... Um, I, I guess the um, the the good thing about it is it means you're never complacent and you're never you know taking your time for granted, and so that was that was my big insight. Is it's like listen, I'm not doing what I want to do. I'm not enjoying this. I'm not learning what I want to learn. So why why am I here essentially? And I really didn't like the idea that I was waiting for 
senior leadership to gain an insight or waiting for like this big corporate entity to like shift over time. And I just, I found that uh, idea to be revolting. And so I, I quit. And when I left, I knew I wanted, I, I knew I wanted to start my own company. So I didn't talk to any other ID companies. I didn't like field offers. I didn't tell anyone I was leaving. I just kind of like left. With, um, you didn't have uh, like a project or a plan for what you were going uh, to build? No, not, not, not a clue. Now, oh, wow. like the, the thing that goes implicit in some of these stories is like, I was at Facebook from 2011 to 2014, which in, by like dumb luck was a great time financially to have been at right. Facebook. <laughs> and so that, that allowed me to be able to kind of just leave and say, Hey, I'm going to like go off and like take a year and just try to figure out what I want to do and tr try it. And if it doesn't work, then, you know, I'm back to where I started. Um, that's like a ridiculous thing to say for many people who don't have that same privilege, but, uh, my philosophy at the time and, you know, I was 25. So, you know, I wouldn't say that in the same stark tone today, but I was like, I'm young, I've got enough money and I have time and that combination will never exist in my life. And if I don't take advantage of it now, then when I have a family, it'll, it's going to be much harder for me to be able to make this kind of decision. And so I, I left and um, what I wanted to do was take a year off. And so I started traveling, I bought a camper van and I just went, you know, I lived in it for a month, uh, for two months actually. And um, I found my way to Norway to go on a hiking trip with a friend of mine. And that's kind of where the genesis of Darkroom came from. Uh, because, you know, Insta my experience at Instagram had exposed me to mobile photography. Right. And um, so I knew that mobile photography was this cool, new, exciting aspect of the wider photography world. And I really loved it. And I thought this was a revolution in like the world of photography. Were you, were you already into photography before that? I was interested in it in the sense that uh, photography was the... The short answer is yes, um, but only as a, a shallow amateur right. um, not like a passion. photography, not a passion. Yeah. And uh, so I, I got really into photography and, you know, through some other tangent, I had the at M account on Instagram. So my account had a lot of followers just about oh from goodness. people just, yeah, it's a whole, it's a whole, that's a whole other thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that uh, you get lots of like hacks and uh, bots and oh, stuff. I've gotten SIM swapped. I've gotten <laughs> passwords. Uh, dude, it's bad. Um, I need to, I need to, I need to do something with that account. It's like caused me more stress than anything at this point. <laughs> but what it, what it, what it did was it made me really passionate about mobile photography and kind of put me in that community a little bit. Yeah. Cause the thing, the thing with early Instagram was like uh technically these are all inferior because you know this is a phone camera that just isn't at the same level but the creativity that people put into it and like working within the restrictions and even extra restrictions that instagram sort of artificially imposed with like the square uh mm -hmm. squareness of it that mm -hmm. sort of created this massive creative community right exactly and, and it's kind of like uh i'm not a gamer but i'm familiar with the argument of like what matters more storytelling in a game or graphics or realism and it's kind of the same thing right like it doesn't matter how good the noise reduction of your dslr is if you're telling a terrible story with it yeah <laughs> and it doesn't matter how grainy the photo is if it tells a great story um see the whole rise of stories uh like instagram and and tiktok and all that like they're all absolutely poor production quality although less so now but but yeah, you can tell an engaging story and it's going to be just as exciting and addicting to people. Yep. And so, th so that kind of 
the recognition that mobile photography is actually a serious creative profession um, is the insight that I had in 2014, 2013 even. And when I went to Norway, I was, you know, and when I went camping, I, would, I was taking all these photos on my phone and there weren't any tools to, that really respected mobile photography as a serious pursuit rather than like a one-off apply a filter and like slap it on an Instagram post. And so I kind of found mobile photography tools to be a little bit like offensive to the serious photographer because they were so inefficient to use and they were trying to solve problems that like actual mobile photographers weren't particularly dealing with. And if you sat down with any mobile photographer um, who did any volume of mobile photography in 2014 and you asked them what their workflow was you heard all these crazy stories of like i go through the photos app to go through all the photos that kind of look similar because i take 30 photos trying to capture the right expression and then i found the one that i like and then i rotate it in the photos app so that then when i go to visco and i try to import it i see the one that has the wrong oh, orientation oh man that's, that's how genius. i know this is doing <laughs> so that's genius from like a crafty like hack the system kind of way right but it's awful as a workflow. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's terrible. <laughs> and, um, and so, so what I wanted to do with Darkroom was say, all right, like, let's start with the fundamentals of how people shoot on and, and like, let's take my experience building mobile and designing mobile uh, software and let me build an experience that respected the mobile photographer as a professional, uh, and didn't try to kind of shoehorn desktop experiences onto the iPhone, but built a truly touch first experience and didn't try to kind of uh, patronize the mobile photographer by building a very limited uh, ex um, editing tool. It's interesting. So, so you're kind of coming at it from solving a mobile photographer's problems angle more than how can we bring Lightroom and I guess Aperture maybe still existed then. How can we bring that experience to mobile? But it's more like it was more driven by by user need than than trying to pull ideas from the desktop experience i mean we it, it was definitely i would phrase it slightly differently it was kind of in the middle right it was how do i take what if lightroom was uh, invented today from scratch for a touch interface and so like here's mm. here's a couple of examples of what i mean so um when it comes to the things that we took from lightroom is the idea of presets being collections of edits rather than like flat lookup tables that you just download from the internet because when when fil like all filter apps uh, even until today um they just like there's a lookup table that you download from some server and they slap it on top of your photo and that's the extent of control that you get and so you can't manipulate the actual filter itself the filter is fixed it's not editable right and that's a problem because it means everybody's photos look exactly the same because yeah. everyone's using the same two filters and if there's a something wrong with the filter that doesn't work for your aesthetic or your story that you're trying to tell you can't edit it and you can't create your own so creating your own filters and and um and the idea of presets came from Lightroom. Um, however, uh, when I say reinvented from scratch for a mobile world, what I mean is in 2014, the iPhone 5S was the device every photographer was using or the five. And uh, everyone was sharing to Instagram. And as you had just mentioned, Instagram had a square format. Right. And so the idea for Darkroom was, all right, let's take that square and let's put it full screen on an iPhone. And that leaves a lot of extra space above and below the photo. Let's take that entire space and fit all our tools into that space. And that and, and the, the second requirement was people are using their phone 
um, in their hand while they're moving around. So everything should be reachable by one finger at the bottom half of the screen. And once you take those two constraints and you put them together, then the kind of the design kind of works itself out from there. Um, and so what we managed to do uh, was build an experience that was powerful enough for mobile uh, photographers to replace a lot of their editing apps, uh, but that was still easy to use because it was optimized for the finger. It was optimized for the go. And we, like one of the metrics that we measured, uh, well, I guess at the time it was just me and uh, my co-founder at the time, Matt Brown. Uh, one of the measure metrics that we measured was no taps to action, like taps for an action. And so, you know, importing photos was this massive 12 tap sequence in visco not to pick on visco it was just a it still is one of the most popular ones yeah, yeah. so it's just what we compare ourselves to and uh in darkroom we implemented a no import process where your photos are just there so you just navigate the dark your icloud photo library as if it was the photos app and so we we just eliminated the entire concept of importing um and, and at, this, at this point this was before raw was oh yeah a, a yeah this is on, just on ios right this is just iphone 5s no ipad no responsive design no raw no portrait photos no nothing this was just an iphone jpeg and it was really simple at the time <laughs> so uh, yeah you, you mentioned a second ago but i'm curious like leading up to the like initial launch what was the what was the team structure like it it sounds like it kind of started with you and then how did you build out from there leading up to this original launch? Yeah, it was just it was just me on engineering and then in the last 8 months of the project I partnered with a friend of mine who was um, a designer, Matt Brown. Okay. Um and together we kind of took it from a prototype to a real product. And and there was there was a full 8 months of work from prototype to product. So there was a lot of iteration, a lot of refinement, a lot of like error handling and like a lot of what happens in this case and this case and edge cases and stuff like that to support along with you know developing a brand, um iterating on design and, on, and all that stuff that goes into launching a product. And uh, so yeah, when we launched it was just the two of us. Um and what was what was the actual launch like? Did you do a whole bunch of press and uh, like try and market it kind of as a big splashy launch there we 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 tried and so what what we, what we did was um because i had connections to a lot of the mobile photography community i reached out to them and i was just like did you know we met up for coffee in san francisco because a lot of them lived in san francisco at the time and we i just demoed darkroom to them and some of them were really excited about what they saw and so i seeded the i seeded the app to them and then a lot of my friends who were in like in the design community on in 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 silicon valley also like i i showed them the app and they really appreciated the the craft of the app itself and the quality of the design and so those were my alpha testers and then when we got close to launch we announced a public beta and because so many quote-unquote influencers had seen it in the alpha stage that created a little bit of buzz ah, that made yeah. the beta announcement successful and that helped seed kind of the early um, buzz around the product but honestly everything fails everything pales in comparison to the fact that we were introduced to a, um, a a contractor who works as a liaison between app developers and Apple editorial. And so we worked with her um, to basically introduce us to uh, the Apple editorial team. And we presented what we were about to launch to them and they really liked it. And so when we launched, we were like, and this was pre iOS uh, 
11 app store where it only changed once a week ah. and so for our week of launch we were like the big banner at wow. the featured page the first thing you saw and it was just insane we were like up there next to instagram and like it was so bizarre it was like an out-of-body experience <laughs> that's and, crazy and so that was really great the problem with it was um as a business like we made a lot of mistakes and it really didn't work as a business and so that's why my partner ultimately had to go pursue other opportunities and f to be honest i actually did as well um and so i took a break from darkroom after we, it was a very successful launch a lot of people really liked it and a lot of people were using it but we weren't we weren't making any money so we launched as a free app and we were selling uh, the curves tool with a few premium filter packs and i mean we were we were on track to make like sixty, seventy thousand dollars after apple's cut in the first year which which is like cool, you know, like it's, yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not nothing. nothing. Yeah. It's not, it's not nothing, but when you're trying to pay two salaries and validate that this is worth spending another two or three years on, it was actually really demotivating because we couldn't pay a single salary off of it. We weren't, we weren't doing this on the side. This was like our main gig. Right. Um, and so, you know, splitting that two ways, $30,000 paying taxes on it, you know, spending, you, you don't get far in San Francisco on a $15,000 no. salary. <laughs> and uh, and so I actually took a break from Darkroom, what ended up being a year and a half long break. And I wasn't intending on it being that long, but I took a break and this was 2015. And if you remember what was happening in the news was the, 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 the Syrian civil war was um, escalating. And in 2015 was the the big mig migrant crisis that happened in uh, Europe. And so I had kind of like the war in Syria started at the beginning of my career. And so my career was going really well um, while the war in Syria was just raging and escalating. And so I lived in this kind of weird dual realities where my my Twitter stream was like, war atrocities and war crimes being live streamed from Syria while someone is complaining about like the hue of blue and the latest Google icon, you know, like, yeah, there was this like really bizarre duality of my life at the time. And I kind of was able to ignore the Syria side just because my career was going so great. And I was kind of, everything was happy in San Francisco, you know, it was like sunny California. And uh, in 2015, I was taking a break from Darkroom and I wasn't working and the war was escalating and the refugee crisis was happening. And the same stories that I was seeing come up in the news were happening to my extended family. And so I had this um, a personal connection that I couldn't ignore anymore. And so I decided to, with a photographer friend of mine from New York, to go and do the Displace project, which is one of the, you know, um, which I'm, you're familiar with. And um, that was a 10-week journey um, through Europe. And we, we did a Kickstarter campaign. We raised money for the book. Uh, we pre-sold, I think, 250 copies. Yeah, that, like one of my questions related is related to that. I, I'm really curious what, like the reasoning behind Kickstarter and even taking one step back from that, what was the, what was the like primary goal of the book? Well, so the idea of the, for the book started in August, 2015 when the refugee crisis was in the news, it was on every single newspaper. And it felt to me like there was an urgency to get there as soon as possible. But why did why did you feel like you needed to get there? 
because everything I was reading on the news was written by Western journalists mm, and okay. it was being portrayed um, in a way that didn't reflect the reality I was as I saw it and as I, I was experiencing it. And um, I, so giving you some more context on this project, um, my family originally, which I, I think you, you may have read in the book, um, my family originally is from a town in southeastern, what is now in Turkey, called Mardin. And in the 1915, there was the Armenian genocide. And um, my family was, you know, uh, many, many, many members of my family were um, murdered in the genocide. And so I can't really trace my family's history much before that and unfortunately it's a very undocumented genocide uh, and the fact that it's undocumented uh, means i don't i have a weaker connection to the history of my family right. and to what happened and what they went through and also it allows uh, it allows the turkish government today to deny that it you know happened in the first place and so i felt like i there's a book that I really wished was written about what my family went through back then and what many families, uh, what millions of people at the time went through. And that book felt like it wasn't written for me. And I really wished it was. And so when what was, when the same thing was happening again, a hundred years later, almost to the day, um, it felt like I had an opportunity to write the book that I wish was written, uh, in the tone yeah, and in yeah. the voice that I, that like was uh, authentic and to that to that specific point too i i haven't mentioned i've read the book and like absolutely loved it it's part of why i was like i, I drummed up the courage to to finally ask you if you'd come on the show because i just wanted to talk to basically anybody and i did talk to everybody i know about this book uh thank you so much to the point that you're you just said like in the voice of the people that you know something i noticed uh about the book that i I'm wondering, I'm assuming it's unintentional, but it almost seems like you erased yourself from it. It like, cause you're kind of going on this epic journey, uh, across all these different countries, but it doesn't feel like a travel vlog or something. Like I feel like most of these journalistic books that I would read, you know, part of the drama is hmm. the people, the person that's actually doing the interviewing and stuff. And you're sort of almost completely detached and it's just the stories of the people you're talking to. Was that was that kind of an intentional voice? Yeah, I mean, I wanted, I wanted to put a microphone. I wanted to give a microphone to these to the people going through. Because here's the thing: like, I'm Syrian American, right? Like, but I haven't personally gone through what they're going through. Right. And it, and 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 it, you know, I don't really have a, a tragic personal story to. I, I I didn't want to drown out their voice and crowd out their voice with my mine. And um, the whole point was to help people see the crisis from the perspective of the refugees themselves. Because ultimately, these are like, I, the only difference between me and the people on the boats was a decision my father took 20 years ago, 25, 30 years ago, to um, start our immigration process into the United States. And that single decision 30 years ago is the only thing that differentiates me from people on boats in 2015 risking their lives. And so there's no, I, I think, you know, there's history has um, this tendency to create this kind of like other where history is happening to those other people yes. and like we are not a part of history and like history doesn't happen to us. History happens to other people who don't look like us. And 
the I mean the refugee crisis kind of shattered that for me because I'm like looking at my childhood friends who are you know getting caught in Vienna on a with a with a forged passport trying to smuggle themselves into Sweden. I mean like and this is someone I like played Legos with when I was a kid. You know like how yeah. how does this how does someone like that end up in a position like 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 that? And it's 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 insane. And the thing that's kind of crazy about it is that same insight. You know it's kind of maybe it's uh, selfish that I had to go that my own people had to go through that for me to understand and empathize with every other kind of refugee who's going through the same thing. So that's, that's the thing though, that reading that book did to me, man, I'm getting like weirdly emotional. Uh, <laughs> I don't, I'm not that normally like that, but uh, because <sighs> this is weird. I I'm serious. I don't know why I'm, I'm like literally well, like, a, I think sort of you have, you have a, a family. <laughs> yeah. Well, so that's the thing is, so like I've read plenty of stories because honestly, because I've read lots of stories about companies founding and a lot of mm -hmm. modern big companies were founded by crazy situations during like World War II, mm -hmm. you know, somebody running from France uh, because the Germans are coming or, you know, whatever the, or in Germany. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I have this sort of like connection to that. Mm -hmm. And those people I think of as business people that went through this thing. Mm -hmm. But modern day refugees i don't think of in those same terms it's like oh mm -hmm. that's those people like kind of like what you're saying it's not in a like i think those people are bad but like this it's a very detached feeling and specifically the fact that you you went to all these different locations which represented different stages of this journey that people are going through mm -hmm. people are just like stuck and they're talking in extremely practical voices that you know i can empathize with really strongly about you know, they have a family or, well, I don't want to leave because I, I want to finish up my last year of school and I finally mm -hmm. did leave. And something about all of those things took it from this crazy story that you watch in a movie or something and made it like super, super like practical, like, oh my gosh, what would I do in this situation? And I think the part that I'm getting a little emotional feeling is this is like, I transferred all of this stuff to people uh, immigrating into the United States from areas of like Mexico or whatever, where mm -hmm. they're facing like so many of these things, especially when you talked about the people in Turkey or not in Turkey in Lebanon, where it's like mm. people natives there were upset at the people coming over in large part because of economic reasons. Cause they were like taking their jobs mm -hmm. and they would do deals under mm -hmm. the table to not, you know, cause they weren't legally there or whatever the reasons. And so much of that was like, Oh, that's me. Not me personally. Like I'm angry, but like I'm the person on the other side that's living this normal life in the exact same space as somebody who's going through this crazy situation. And it just connected a whole bunch of dots uh, mm. that I don't know. The way you told that story is so unique because I've read plenty about the war and the the human element of it is uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, and I'm really, I'm really glad that you're you're saying that because that was an explicit goal with the book. The like, I knew that by virtue of me writing this book and putting it together, the people who are going to read it are not, are may not, may not, are going to be a certain kind of person. You know, they're going to be younger urban um, folks in the United States. And the core idea of the book, the core message of the book is to tell those people, people like you and me, that the people on boats in Greece are no different than us. No different. 
Like they have families, they have jobs, they play video games, like they have iPhones, they're on WhatsApp, they're programmers, they're doctors, they're mechanical engineers. Oh my gosh. When you would talk about like while they're waiting for a boat, people would just be sitting on their phones and like scrolling through Facebook. I literally started tearing up <laughs> during one of those <laughs> because I don't know, it, it was weird. Again, I know I sound like, I don't know, I'm not a person who normally like cries in movies or anything, but <sighs> it was like, it it rips you into this like modern reality in a way that my head is in a different space when I'm reading about refugees. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I not, I'll, I'll, the book itself is a hundred percent completely and intentionally apolitical. Um, but yeah. I'll get, I'll get a little, I'll get a little a slightly more political just in this conversation. Cause I've, it's been top of mind for me, which is I tweeted recently about the fact that in, in, in the West, um, you can be so casually, uh, you know, racist to be frank towards, um, people in Central Asia and Arabs and Muslim, even in polite liberal company unintentionally, just because that kind of worldview is so entrenched as part of the culture. So like, here's, here's just like a trivial example, right? If, uh, if an American goes to, let's say Thailand, they're an expat. But if a Thai person comes to America, they're an immigrant. Mm, and like, yeah. really, there's like, I think there's like a telling nuance in just the terminology. It's like, you're an expat when you go from like a quote unquote good country to like a less good country. And, um, and this, the second part of it is like, uh, let's, let's say like, let's take what you just mentioned, right? Around the fact that, uh, when you hear the stories of like immigrants from World War II starting these companies, you see yourself in them. Well, those were all European yes. white immigrants. Yep. And the refugees that you don't see that connection with are all, they look different. And really the, on, the only thing that's different there is there's, there's nothing fundamentally different in those stories other than like where the people are from. Right. And, 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 and again, I don't, I don't want to make it sound uh, in the least bit accusatory. It's well, just, it's part I, of, it's, fair, it's part of the Western <laughs> gaze, you know, it's a, it's a Western gaze on the world. And that's why I wrote this book because even me, myself, I caught myself doing the same thing. Um, and that's why I caught myself doing it. And I wanted to write this book to help show it to other people. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause uh, like, cause you did, the book is in English. Is it only in English? Yeah. So it is kind of written towards a Western audience then, I guess, in that regard. Oh, it's explicitly written yeah. for a young, urban, educated, liberal person. Have you, like, but at the beginning you mentioned, like, kind of wanting to capture this, the story of of these people that you wish had been captured about, uh, like, your family. Mm -hmm. Have you thought about, like, translating it? I guess it's really complicated because it's not like you're you have a huge amount of books that you're getting printed and everything. Yeah, and so, um, one thing is the genesis behind the idea, and the other thing is the reality of what it became. Um, those two things aren't always the same. Right. Um, so, what's important for me is that the writing in the book is the words of the refugees themselves, and the photos is of their full, unedited journey. And to me, that is the record that matters. Um, because... When I write their words, I'm not editorializing. This is their story. This is what they said, and this is what they told me, and this is what they went through. Um, and so I feel, I feel like it, it still serves that purpose, whether it's in English or in Arabic. You know, like it doesn't, right. it, it makes no difference. No, that that definitely makes sense. So I guess before we get off this topic, because this is this is something I think I'm 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 also very fascinated in, but I do want to get back to Darkroom too. Uh, mm -hmm. Is just a couple like. 
interesting tidbits about uh, the logistics behind the book. Like, how did you how did you go about doing that? Like, did you have to get a whole bunch of visas and passports? And was that process complicated? Like the actual traveling bit? Well, I mean, the the the, the everyone who's leaving it on boats is leaving because they have a Syrian passport that doesn't allow them to go anywhere in 2015. Uh, I have an American passport that allows me to go everywhere without a visa in 2015. And so... Like it was kind of like to know. Yeah. 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 It was a little bit like I'm holding in my pocket this arbitrary piece of like dead tree that makes me a safer person to the world than who, I mean, I have both passports. I have a Syrian passport and an American passport. And like one, one piece of dead tree makes me dangerous. And the other piece of dead tree makes me safe. And when you just think of it as paper, just, you just realize how kind of, arbitrary all of it is um the the part that made that was difficult was you know sleeping in a uh, heated mm, uh, a hotel yeah. room right above the beach where all 24 hours of the day through the night boats are arriving and like people are wet and drenched oh in gosh, yeah. cold weather that was that was hard um um but yeah the passport thing too but the logistics of the trip i mean it was we raised uh, $22,000 on the Kickstarter campaign. We used $10,000 to uh, for the 10-week trip, um, which we used for hotels, airfare, car rental, uh, the works. And the, um, the rest of the money was intended to be used for printing, but printing costs were much higher. But this book, like Darkroom, was fully independently. Uh, I wrote it. I designed it. Um, Sarah is the photographer. She edited all the photos. Um, and then we found a, we self-published it with a publisher up in Canada and they did an amazing job publishing it. Um, the, you know, the, the problem with the, the problem, I underestimated how difficult it was going to be to sell. <laughs> That's what I everybody pre- says about I, all physical goods. Uh, always. Yeah. It's unbelievable, man. It's crazy. I'm, I mean, this, this, this project just cost me so much money, but I, I ended up uh, printing a thousand copies. Like I said, we're, we're about halfway through the copies that we've sold. We've still got another 500 sitting in storage in Phoenix. Um, and, you know, the, the book, um, the book took me two years to finish. Um, it took a really long time because I had to learn about book design, book publishing, uh, in design. So you as did a software. like the layout and all of that stuff. I did, I did the layout, the design, iterated on it. I did all the writing, um, like editing the book. Um, all of it just took so much time. Um, and you know, it was one of those things where you, it takes you a long time to get started. And then by the time you finish, you've learned so much that what you did in the beginning is crap and you now know <laughs> that it's crap. So you have to start over. Yeah. And so that happened yeah, twice yeah. and it's just everything took way longer than it needed to. And by, by the halfway through after, after a year, I had taken a year off darkroom and I wasn't doing anything. So I wasn't making any money. And so I, I actually took a contract with Lyft just cause I got lonely and and I, I, I just wanted to make some money because I was sick of burning through my savings. And um, and that lasted for six months. And and that was just like a, one of those experiences where it's like, yeah, I really don't want to get back to this as a lifestyle. And I want to keep doing my own thing. And um, Jasper had left his job at Facebook at the time. And we were hanging out in San Francisco. And we were talking about how much we liked working with each other. And we wanted to um, work together. But, you know, I'll, I'll get to that next. And... Uh, 
But yeah, so so I, I I self-published the book and printed it and fulfilled it with this um, book publisher. And the thing that was really important to me is that I wanted the book itself as an object to be um, a lasting object. Uh, I wanted it to be like a historical record. So it's a big, thick, heavy, hardcover book with the highest weight paper you can print it, print yeah. it on. Um, Honestly, it, that almost threw me off because <laughs> like that was what I saw in all the pictures, you know, of the book. And I was like, okay, this will be a cool, I, I knew it was, you know, you and, and you had a photographer. And so I was thinking it was going to be like a photo, but like a coffee table photo book. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't realize there was actually that much editorial, like, you know, it's an actual book book, uh, because mm-hmm. whenever you get it, it is this beautiful hardcover, big, really thick paper book that you, you know, leave out on the coffee table, like you would, uh, you know, mm beaches of Costa Rica or whatever, right? Uh, it is like that level of uh, nice looking. But then inside, it's like almost deceptive that it has this rich book inside of it with all these rich stories. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I don't want to spend all this time talking about the book without talking about Sarah's photography too, because she did an amazing yeah. job. And, and you know, she took over a terabyte of raw files. She took over like 60,000 photos and there's only 250 in the book. And... The, going through that process was actually really interesting and insightful just for darkroom story because that I was, gave I was me about to say yeah yeah that gave me the insight into what a real professional photographer does because all, everything i knew was just from mobile photography like i said but sarah just did an amazing job and a lot of those photos combine compositional aesthetic beauty with this insane subject matter and the thing that i think i didn't realize until i went and saw her working is in a in, in documentary photography, you don't control anything about what's happening. You're just an observer. And so my kind of lifestyle travel photography where you just kind of go to a pretty spot and like take your time framing a nice photo and like hit snap and like it's just calm, like aesthetic experience is not the case when there's, you know, people streaming by like tons of things happening and you need to have this photographer's eye where you can notice little details pick him out from the crowd and be able to have honed your craft enough to really quickly pick up a camera focus it uh, expose it and capture that scene and so so many of these photos are just within a thousand things happening and people screaming and yelling and she's able to find like the little girl looking straight at her yeah uh, among this crowd and they're ha- you know they're hauntingly beautiful photos right combined with the the portraits of the people that you're interviewing you know later uh it's not just this is a person sitting in a in a you know old building that they're kind of stuck in it's like mm. you can kind of get their personality or their joyfulness or or whatever the moment is uh through those as well which i i don't know it, it was really cool and having those big full page uh, photos combined Spreads, with the yeah. stories made a big difference, at least to me. Yeah, that was Jasper's contribution. Like he, he was like, find a key, uh, find a few key emotional highlights, and really like dial it home. And like those photos, like my favorite spreads are the ones with the black background, where it kind of like shifts from day to night, and the intensity of the photo shifts. And the book is very much intended for you to like the photos take you on an emotional journey and like you're intended to sit down and like look at the photos and think about what's happening and they move through time and so learning more about 
that process helped me appreciate photography in general and photo books in particular, just how hard it is to create a narrative and balance text and photos. It's Photos alone is one challenge. Text alone is another challenge. Photos plus text is a whole other challenge yeah. because you've got pacing, you've got layout, you've got design, all of it plays with each other. Man, but it, it, it feels like it, it tickles a lot of the uh, parts of like craft that you were talking about earlier with with your web design early on and then moving into native development where it's like... I mean, it, it actually... That was actually the next thing I was going to say. So, yeah, I mean, 100%. And the thing that's nice about print is like, imagine if you're designing an iPhone app, but you've only got, you know, it's 2007 and you've got only one size screen yeah. to support. You can... <laughs> Pixel you can literally back again. Yeah. You can, you can place things pixel by pixel and you know exactly, it's like print design, you know, you know exactly what's going to get printed, where everything is going to go, how every person is going to experience something. And, you know, I think I emotionally needed that just to, I need to go through that experience just to tell myself, all right, like, yes, you are capable of achieving something that you consider to your own standards to be good. And you know, I always had a chip on my shoulder just because I had never actually done something up until that point that I felt truly proud of that like had hit the goals that I had set for myself. And in many ways, like before my career and my personality can move forward, I needed to work through that. Uh, and the cool thing about a book is, you know, that version is sort of frozen in time on your bookshelf. Yep. It's not like an app where, you know, the original version of an app, even if you think it's beautiful and even if you keep it up, uh, it's not the same as whenever you started it. And you'll never really have that again unless you keep an old phone on an old version running an old, yeah. you know, that that's unlikely. That sort of fades to time and you have to reference old screenshots. But a book, like you have that. That's a physical thing that's sort of going to stay that way. Yeah. And, you know, I actually like there's something to be admired about that. Uh, but there's also something there's a pragmatism that you need when uh, doing product work. And, and I think that's why like that chip on my shoulder was important to work out and to remove that kink from my ego, just to say, all right, like, yes, I'm capable of doing it. And, um, I, I don't need to worry and constantly have anxiety about it, um, about my ability to execute at a level that I think is acceptable. It's, uh, I can keep that as an aspiration and constantly work toward it without, um, feeling unsatisfied with my work constantly and constantly questioning it. Mm. Um, and so, but you know, like just on a personal level too, like that project like changed my own, um, self identity, um, changed how I see myself and my role in the world. Like it was really transformative just for me on, on a personal level. In many ways, I don't think darkroom could be what it is today. Well, I mean, I know I don't have to think, I know the darkroom today wouldn't be what it is had I not gone through that project, which is why I feel okay about, you know, it not selling 20,000 copies and a publisher like picking it up and it not making back all the money I spent on publishing. Like none of that stuff matters because the story got told in a way that I wanted it to get told. And, um, you know, it had a big personal impact on me and on the people who see it, which ultimately is the whole point of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I'm, I'm really not blowing smoke. I, <laughs> it really genuinely like touched me and, uh, changed how I view the world which is, you know, it really means a lot, Charlie. Thank you so much. It's weird how, how things can hit you like that. You know, certain documentaries or whatever that you wouldn't expect, uh, they hit you hard and you know, I'm going to think about that for like the rest of my life when I'm thinking about these certain contexts. And that, that's where that book really like hit me. Uh, oh man, so, you're giving me goosebumps. Yeah. <laughs> this is high praise. Thank you so much. <laughs> so, uh, I really appreciate that. 
so back to darkroom before before we run out of time but i'm so glad we got time to talk about that uh so after after the book uh you came back and did you did you get right back into darkroom then was that like kind of your game plan yeah, the last so the first year I was working exclusively on the book, and then the second year of the book's production, I was splitting my time between Darkroom and the book. Um, and uh, but you know the, the 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 me and Jasper when we decided to work together, um, he loves photography. He had actually advised me on Darkroom even at the prototype stage, and we you know we told each other, listen, uh, we don't know exactly what we want to work on, but there's this thing called Darkroom that like Jasper really likes using it and really likes it even in its like neglected form over a year. And um, we're like, let's give this a year. Let's work on it. Let's instill like this monthly release cadence. Let's try to take some of the rigor that we learned at Facebook, uh, maintain the same quality and refinement that we got from our shared Apple DNA. And let's see what happens if we try hard for a year to make this work. If things are progressing, we'll keep working on it. If not, we'll start something new. And so... That year, you know, we like doubled revenue, which again is like 60 to 120, you know, so we're still not making a lot of money, but we're putting effort in and we're seeing reward right. uh, on the other side. And There's so, an impact. It's not just stagnant. Exactly. So as while when we saw those numbers improve, we're like, okay, let's, as long as things keep moving in the right direction, we can be patient for a few years and see where this goes. Because we fundamentally think what we're trying to do is worth doing. And, um, so we, we, you know, we kept at it. The first, the first thing we did together was, um, just cleaning up bugs, um, iterating on what we sell and how we sell it. Um, and that those two things just helped us double the revenue right there. And then we started working on Darkroom 3.0, which added support for raw files, for portrait editing, the frame tool. Um, it rebuilt our infrastructure from what was GPU image at the time to core image. Um, so it was a big update. It took me like nine months of work to, to get it done. And then when we launched that, uh, things really started picking up again. Um, and we weren't seeing like whiz bang explosive updates where we made hundreds of thousands of dollars, which is what you used to hear about in 2010, yeah. 2012. And uh, instead what we were seeing was this baseline that was constantly trending up. And uh, with each big update, the baseline would kind of take a step up and keep growing and then take a step, step up and keep growing. And at this stage, it was in-app purchases. So all of the growth was from new maybe not new users, but new purchasers, right? Everything was, yeah, yeah. It, it was, a, it's always been uh, until we switched to subscription in February of this year, it was a free app with uh, in-app purchases. Um, I mean, we could spend an hour just talking about yeah, monetization. I, yeah, I know. Like, I want to. I'm resisting. <laughs> I mean, hey, I'm, I'm happy to do this again and do a second part because, uh, you know, there's like, it's it's crazy, um, and um, so I'll I'll keep it I'll keep it at a high level just from like a product journey perspective uh, for now, and so yeah so Darkroom three was just uh, it was it was always a free app with in app purchase Darkroom three added um, a new infrastructure along with raw editing and depth photos, but we were still iPhone only. Was three whenever you uh, whenever you like partnered with. Halide. That was uh, man. I can't remember if it was Darkroom three or Darkroom four, but. Um, they launched, I, I guess it was Darkroom 3 because we had added raw f uh, photo support. That was then. what I was thinking. Yeah. And so that was, that was great just from like a community perspective. Um, but, you know, it's been, it's been really interesting. Like on, uh, even today, raw photos represent like 1% of the photos being edited in Darkroom. Oh, interesting. Depth photos, I wouldn't have thought that. Yeah. 
depth photos represent about portrait photos. Uh, they represent about 5%. Um, now we've added video and I haven't checked the numbers recently, but I think video is around three to 6%. And then, oh, wow. That's you know, higher than 90%, 90%. Yeah. 90% of the photos are that are edited in darkroom are either live photos or plain iPhone JPEGs, which, huh. you know, I think the raw capturing Halide using, uh, I mean, Halide is an incredible app and they've been incredibly successful. Um, this is, this is, you know, Halide is just the app that we partner with, but, um, that segment of our user base is the most active, especially on Twitter, ah, but, yeah. um, represents 1% of our users. And so there's this constant kind of like multiple worlds that we live in yeah, where we're trying to get like, yeah. And so, I mean, that's, Man, I, again, like one of the, I could also spend another hour talking just about darkroom strategy and how we <laughs> ex- approach it over the past five years. But um, yeah, darkroom, darkroom three introduced us to more uh, serious photographers and kind of helped establish darkroom as the more professional, more serious edit, photo editing app. Because up until then, you know, you could have used any, you could have used any of the other apps. The only thing that darkroom provided was no import editing. Um, and then. Fast forward another seven, eight months. And during that time, everyone kept asking us for iPad. Um, like, is it, are you going to come on the iPad? Are you going to come on the iPad? And in 2015, the iPad was kind of in a lull, like where it wasn't cool and new anymore. And the iPad Pro wasn't out yet. And nobody was really using the iPad. You didn't have like a keyboard hardware, like keyboard folio for it. You didn't have the Apple Pencil for it. Um, it wasn't very powerful. Uh, so we kind of just ignored the fact that the, we just ignored the iPad. But at the time, two things were happening. The first was the iPad Pro rumors were starting to come out along with Marzipan or, you know, what is now Catalyst. And so we knew that like potentially iPad apps would run on the Mac one day and we knew that like better iPads were coming out. But most importantly, from a user perspective, there were zero photography apps dedicated for the iPad. Ah. So if you were a mobile photographer who cared about, like who wanted to do editing on a bigger screen, you had literally scaled up iPhone apps. Interesting. And by that point, you you sort of had the, uh, at least somewhat of a uh, creative market proof of concept for, for the iPad because like uh, Affinity and... Uh, Pixelmator. Pixelmator and Procreate, they were kind of like popular in that space even, even before the Pro, right? Yeah. And, but... Uh, so pixel uh, so affinity is more of a photoshop pixelmator f- used to be more of a photoshop they're kind of transitioning more into like our world where we're more of a, a lightroom yeah i was just meaning like sort of proof that you can have a there there is an audience for sort of professional apps yep. on yep and adobe launched lightroom on the ipad around that time so it was like kind of validating that the ipad was capable of doing all these things and so we invested time in darkroom 4.0 um to release darkroom for the ipad and that's when things really took off. Like the, the darkroom I for iPad update was bigger than our initial launch in 2014 when we were like at the top oh, of the app wow. store. Yeah. And so then, you know, the, the baseline, you know, that was just the peak, right? So it, it didn't stay up there. And then, um, but with every update in the meantime, things kept getting better and better and better. But it was, you know, it was, it was good. We were able to hire an engineer at that point. So we were three people who we were two engineers finally, but it was pretty clear that like we've, Jasper and I have had a very clear vision of like Darkroom's five-year trajectory and we knew how much bigger and more intense things were going to be. It was so clear we were going to need a bigger team to get there. And it was 
super clear where we're going to need more money to do it. And we had avoided raising any capital. So it was just the two of us. And, you know, that's one of the things that's different with Darkroom and, and other indie apps. Like Darkroom was never a side project. Right. And Darkroom was never meant to be a two-person company. Darkroom was from the first day, from inception, intended to be eight to 10 people working on it full-time, trying to support like a full pipeline and like platform for professional photographers like we're competing with lightroom and capture one and pixelmator we're not competing with a side project on ios exactly that i think i've talked about that on an episode before where it's like there's the like ios apple developer community is like pretty tight-knit but there is this interesting like bifurcation between people who are building businesses and people who are just kind of i I don't want to be reductive i mean i'm including myself in this right it's like Mm. it's a side project but it's a you're making this one kind of thing for yourself. And and there's this weird dissonance that happens whenever both those groups forget that the other side is has different <laughs> requirements that they have to deal with. Yeah, and also both are valid. You know, like I exactly, make no value right. judgments. Like I love Dark Noise. You know, it's a great app. Like I use it especially with, that one, with our yeah, newborn yeah, baby with all the, the time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I just, I, I, I find that like thing, that, that fascinating because I, I can't think of many communities I'm in where there's such a like it's a tight knit community, but there is, there's such a big difference between, you know, if you're supporting employees and you're not just that alone. Yeah. It's like, you have to look at everything totally different. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, we care a lot more about like metrics, growth, like revenue experimentation than I think like an indie uh, developer does when they treat what they're doing as like art. Right. Or as like, yeah. And you have to, you have to keep, you know, Adobe in the back of your mind at all times, which is in its own right, probably, uh, uh, a challenge i guess mentally maybe <laughs> yeah i mean everything about darkroom has been a mental challenge well, and an emotional <laughs> challenge <laughs> um but you know with dark darkroom for like the business started to be a little bit healthy but you know i don't my, my background is in product and design right it's not in image processing and metal right. and OpenGL at the time and so with darkroom 4 we kind of engineered ourselves into a corner and unfortunately i had to bring in some extra like expert uh, help uh, just as a contract basis to try to like teach me some image processing fundamentals <laughs> and then yeah i remember you getting books on uh like color theory yeah dude it's it, i mean it's it's like a, a whole field of science so i don't claim to be a color scientist but i need to know enough to be dangerous you know right. um and uh, as a founder i need to then hire people who are better than me <laughs> and who are domain specialists but you know we're not quite there yet but um i spent actually a year working on a new uh, image renderer because you know darkroom 4 from a product perspective was amazing but for that one percent pro user who was using raw you loaded up two raw photos and it would crash because it ran out of memory and like you do this and that and it would crash because it like ran out of memory so we were just really memory um hogs at the time and we were just using it kind of stupidly to be honest and now darkroom is much much more mature and um you know we i spent a year working on that new renderer where we didn't really release any major new updates and then we launched we with the we, you know, our business was still growing, but, you know, at 20, 30% a year, which is good, but not when you need to be growing 100% a year, right. a few years in a row to get to like a thriving, successful business. And so, um, that was, that was a hard year. 2019 was a hard year for Darkroom. And 2020, despite 
it's many, many, many challenges. Um, we ended up switching to subscription, which has been really healthy for our business. We ended up launching the new image renderer, which really improved our stability and performance. Um, it allowed us to, you know, now we can edit 80 megabyte Leica Q2 raw files and zoom in on them to a pixel level and like no sweat. Um, and the new renderer allowed us to really easily add video editing. So now, you know, 4K 10-bit video is like playing back at a full 16 frames per second yeah, while we process every frame. It's bananas. It's, I still sometimes see them like, what the, what the hell's going on it's so crazy and like yeah you're doing real time like uh, color correction and stuff uh on on your ipad and this little tiny tiny machine and uh, yeah it, it still is like weird uh, yeah. not in a bad way but it's just kind of wild yeah and like some of the stuff we're working on now is even more wild like hopefully you know we have like dark on five actually like coming out soon and Ooh. there's some like banana stuff happening there as oh, well man. that like I keep seeing it. I'm just like, what? <laughs> and now, now we're three engineers and we have like a, a contractor. So we're like four people contributing code along with Jasper. So we're five on the Slack. And so it's, it's feeling a little bit more like a company. Um, we're still, you know, like I said, we still need to like double <laughs> our growth uh, for a couple of years before, you know, we, we get to the size of the company that I think we need to be to support the kind of product infrastructure and growth that we need. Um, so there's still a lot to do, my God. Um, but it's been, as you know, every year the numbers, uh, indicate to us that there's a product market fit, that there's a need in the community that if we keep iterating, things will get good. And you know, 2020 was just also the Apple design award, which is like, yeah, I know. I, I was looking at my notes and I'm like, oh my gosh, we're like out of time. And I have so many things I still haven't asked you. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, you guys won the Apple design award this year. Dude, it's uh, honestly like I have it on my desk and it's every time I see it, like it feels like somebody dropped their ADA off at my desk. Like it doesn't seem like a real thing that actually happened. And you know, as much as I talked earlier about um, that book helping me get rid of that chip on my shoulder <laughs> and like the fact that like Darkroom still seems buggy and unrefined to me. And, and I see, and I know it's not, you know, like I know we are 4.8 star, like editor's choice, Apple design award winning, much loved app. Like I know those are like um, facts <laughs> that I can't argue with, but emotionally it's like still feels like we have so long to go before Darkroom really gets to the, this like imagined ideal that I have for it. Um, I think I've just over time gotten better at recognizing this is just never going to happen. <laughs> right. If you spent all your time uh, cleaning every single crack, then uh, yeah, you'd never add any new features. Yeah, exactly. And like the thing is like we need some of these new features, new, some of these new features to really deliver a kind of cohesive experience that like is still missing in Darkroom. So there's still a lot to do. Um, but by virtue of not raising money and by being so resource constrained on the engineering side, like we really have to pick one thing to do at a time, do it well. Like now we're at a stage where we can do two things at a time, but we need to be doing four things at a time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. Oh man. That's awesome. Well, I am, I actually am a little bit over on your time even. So, uh, uh, I will I will spare you the question uh, on the back end that I always ask everybody too, um, and we'll we'll wrap things up. So well, thank you thank you so much for uh, taking the time to chat with me. I, I hope I didn't monologue for too long, and I hope this was interesting for you and your listeners. I cannot express uh, more thanks for for you have coming on, and also for you uh, writing uh, displaced and and darkroom. I just adore darkroom. Um, Thank you so, so much. I appreciate it. Where can where can people find you and like uh, the work that you do? 
So uh, the the book is for sale only on SyrianDiaspora.com, uh, and that's uh, you can you can type that. <laughs> yeah, I'll put it in and, the show notes. <laughs> and uh, Darkroom is on the App Store, and you can find me tweeting at JTabby on Twitter is where I'm most active with the community. Awesome. And is it? Did you say it was? Is it diaspora? Like it's not. I was saying diaspora. It's, it's like it's one of those like tomato tomatoes, like halite or halite. It's diaspora or diaspora. Oh, okay. Like it's. Cool. it's <laughs> either works. Awesome. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to discuss the show, you can find me on Twitter at underscore Chucky C, or tweet the show directly at Launched FM. You can also discuss the episode with me, other listeners, and sometimes our guests on our dedicated subreddit, r slash launched.fm. If you like the show, I'd really appreciate a rating or review in Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Breaker, or whatever your podcast of choice happens to be. And you can find show notes and more at launched.fm.com. Launched.fm.